Hi, this is Chris Date, and you're listening to the The Apologetics Podcast, episode 19, Leave the Past Behind. In this episode, I'm going to follow up to my interview with Dee Dee Warren by playing some calls that I made into the into Greg Kokel's Stand to Reason radio show uh, on the same topic. Before I get into that, I want to thank my friend Phil Nasons, host of the What Color Is the Sky in Their World podcast, for inviting me to appear on his show to talk about theology, about apologetics, um, and about powerlifting. <laughs> I had a great time doing the interview, and, and you know, in case you'd like to check it out, you can go to theologytoday.podbean.com, and you can check out my interview there. Um, maybe you'll enjoy it. <laughs> Also, I've noticed that I've got some listeners on the The Apologetics Facebook page that I don't recognize. That really means a lot to me that you would go out of your way to um, follow the Facebook page, even though you don't know me personally. And it tells me that I have listeners beyond just my <laughs> personal friends and family. So thanks for, for joining that page. And for those of you who haven't, um, if you have a Facebook account and if you'd like to um, chat with me or if you'd like to leave me comments or, or, or anything like that or, or just follow some of the informal comments I make at that page um, outside of my blog, you can go to facebook.com and search for The Apologetics. Um, you'll see my green logo and click like and you'll make me a very happy fellow. So, um, And also I'd like to remind you that the The Apologetics podcast is available in the iTunes store as well as the Zoom Marketplace, which are two great places to leave me comments as well. Um, plus, those comments that you'll leave will be um, visible to other people who might be considering this podcast. And if you think that I have anything worthwhile to say, then leave a comment in those places so that people will know that, hey, this is a podcast that might just be worth listening to. Now, I've not that long ago played a promo for Greg Kokel's Stand to Reason radio show, but because I'm going to be playing calls that I've made into that show, I figured that that would be an appropriate promo to play in this episode. So, have a listen. This is the show your pastor warned you about. Hello, friends. Greg Kokel here, Stand to Reason, and I'm so glad you joined me today. Looking forward to three hours of conversation, reflection, and uh, giving you a piece of my mind on the most important things that we can be thinking about. And yes, I think thinking is critical, even though feeling is part of it. I don't know if I've said this before on the air regarding Christianity. Pardon me. But uh, emotions are what makes life delicious, and uh, careful thinking is what makes life safe. When I was interviewed recently by Phil Nasons, I brought Greg Kokel up as an example of somebody that I think at least seems to be a very humble apologist. When I've called into his show and when I've heard other callers call in, he's just come across as very considerate, very respectful. He, he seems to sincerely consider what you have to say. He doesn't talk over you, um, interrupt, any of that kind of stuff. So, yeah, I definitely highly recommend his show. You can listen from 2 to 5 p.m. on Sunday afternoons in the California area. You can do that over the radio. Otherwise, you'll have to do it online or on your iPhone. Anyway, I hope you'll check his ministry out. I'll include links in the show notes. And with that, let's go ahead and move into today's topic. 
Now, the first call that I made into Greg Kokel's show um, several months ago, it was not long after I began listening. And it, it concerned me that when callers had called in to ask about preterism, both the caller and Greg himself referred to our view as partial preterism. And the extreme version uh, that we call hyperpreterism, the callers and Greg would call full preterism. And this is a, a, a way of referring to these two views that Dee Dee Warren and I both think really needs to be moved away from. So here's that first call that I made in. Chris in uh, Bonnie Lake, Washington, welcome to the show. Hi, Greg. I'm glad that you're back safe and rejuvenated. Thank you, Chris. I appreciate that. Um, I'm a relatively new listener. Uh, I've been going back to your podcast for about two weeks now. And uh, I just want to thank you for um, your effort in teaching Christians how to think and not so much what to think. I think that's a skill that uh, we Christians really need to develop throughout our lives. Great, great. I, I, I agree with you, obvious, um, obviously, and I'm glad you got the message. <laughs> um, first of all, bear with me and forgive me. I'm, I've got really bad stage fright, and that will probably shine through in, my, uh, in my, what I have to say. Um, well, you sound great to me, so uh, I couldn't tell. Well, I <laughs> appreciate that. Um, I don't have a question in the usual sense, but rather a request uh, for you and for your audience. I mm -hmm. hope you'll um, consider it. And it has to do with the issue of preterism. Um, in some of the episodes that uh, I've listened to from the past few weeks, callers in have called in asking about preterism, and you've discussed what appear to be two very similar views um, by labeling them partial and full preterism. Mm -hmm. um, if you want to explain the differences for, the, for your audience, you're welcome to do so. Otherwise, I'll just keep going. Oh, you want me to explain them now? Is that what you're saying? Well, if, if you think that the if, if you want the audience to understand. Oh, oh, I see. Yeah, as I understand it, this this isn't an area that I go heavily into because eschatology is not much of a concern of mine. So I haven't really uh, pursued many of the details there. But um, preterism is the idea of notions of eschatology that people think are still yet future have actually been fulfilled in the past. I mean, that broad characterization there, and that's why the word preterism is used. Uh, the preterite tense is the past tense. So um, a partial preterist would be somebody, and here I'm speaking broadly, and if you want to refine this for me, you're welcome to do so, Chris. A partial preterist is going to be somebody who says some of the things that we might see, for example, in the book of Revelation or in Matthew 24, Luke 21, the Olivet Discourse kind of stuff, um, may have been fulfilled already um, in the first century, particularly when uh, Israel was attacked or Jerusalem was attacked by Titus. Um, and and it may also be that though there was a f fulfillment of those things then in the short term, that th there's kind of a double fulfillment, something else like that might also be happening in the end time. So you got might have an echo in, in, in the uh, the fulfillment of that prophetic thing, and that's called uh, a partial preterist view. I want to interject for a moment just to make clear that what Greg is saying is that, yes, partial preterists, as he called them, or uh, preterists, as I think they really should be called, we are open to the possibility that there are future events that will um, serve as a secondary fulfillment of some of the prophecies we think were fulfilled in the first century. Um, that having been said, because those prophecies have had their primary fulfillment in the past, I personally don't think that we have that, that we're justified in expecting a future fulfillment, a future secondary fulfillment. It might happen that way, um, but we certainly can't expect it, and. Um, and all that was required for those for those prophecies to have been truly fulfilled are those events which have already taken place. So we're open to a secondary future fulfillment, but we don't think that we should expect it. 
And a more full preterist view would be the view that that virtually everything that is prophesied in the book of Revelation is to take place, uh, or that Jesus mentioned in Matthew uh, 24 in the Olivet Discourse, has already taken place completely um, there in 70 A.D., and therefore the book of Revelation would have been written before 70 A.D. Actually, preterists... uh of the Orthodox persuasion would also <clears throat> um, claim that the book of Revelation was written before 70 AD if we take a preteristic interpretation of the book of Revelation as people like uh, Kenneth Gentry and Dee Dee Warren and myself do. So it's not just uh, hyper-preterists who place the writing of Revelation before 70 AD. And I think there's a good reason to do so. I, I think the evidence is actually in our favor. But I just wanted to point that out. And so the return of Christ in some robust sense, though different than the way we think of that phrase now, actually has taken place. And, um, and so history, history has seen a fulfillment of those things that, uh, that uh, are prophesied as end times prophecy. And that would be more akin to a full preterism. So we are now into a new stage after the return of Christ according to the characterization of full preterists. Did I get it right, by and large? Yeah, yeah. Um, okay. and, and I think the real key uh, difference there is that one of those views, and, and, and this will this will come in later in, in my request for, for you, uh, one of those views is completely orthodox. It's completely within, uh, it completely affirms the essentials of the Christian faith uh, that have been united upon by uh, orthodox Christians throughout history, whereas the other view denies some of those essentials, not just the return, uh, future return of Christ, which, by the way, uh, oh, 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 hold on, but also the future bodily resurrection of all people, um, which, by the way, Paul called a gangrene, uh, speaking of a, na- a man named Hymenaeus, if you'll... Mm-hmm. Uh, In Timothy, I think, right? Is that right? Uh, it may be. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but, and also the but, but what you're saying is that there was a teaching that all had been fulfilled already, and Paul speaks ill of that teaching in his letters. Is that what you're referring to? Specifically the resurrection. He says that there are those who claim that the resurrection Re- has already taken place, right. Mm-hmm. right. Um, so I just want to make this distinction that we're not, we're not dealing with two orthodox views, you know, much like you might uh, contrast Calvinism with Arminianism. Right. Um, but you're dealing with an, an orthodox versus an unorthodox, heterodox, some might say heretical uh, view. So those who believe in a, a partial preterism is, is within the pale, which I would agree, and a full preterism is, uh, you would say, is 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 not just is is outside of the pale. Is that what you're suggesting? I yes, you? this, that's okay. correct. And, and and this is going to come into my request um, or, or play a factor in it. The request that I have for you uh, and for the audience, um, and I think there are several of us within uh, not just the what you're calling the partial preterist view, but also orthodox people of various eschatological mm-hmm. uh, eschatological persuasions. Uh, we want to move away from this distinction between the, these two views um, as being one between partial and full preterism, and uh, between preterism, referring to the partial view, and hyper-preterism, or some mm. similar term. Mm-hmm. And there's a real important reason for this, or a few important reasons, which if, if I can take a few moments sure. of your time, I'll explain. Sure. Um, first of all, um, there, it's been said that he who controls the language controls the debate. Mm-hmm. I don't know where that, that, where that phrase comes from, but I think that it holds true. We see it, you know, for example, in the, in the use of the word gay. Right. That used to mean one thing, now it means another. So Pro-choice, sure. I understand. Exactly. I'm with you on that. Um, now, hyper-preterists, as I'm calling them, or, or full-preterists, as you've called them, 
um, whose view didn't exist before about 100 years ago or so. I mean, you just don't find it anywhere in the historical literature. Mm-hmm. Um, and as we've already talked about, have an unorthodox view. They've successfully co-opted this term, this term preterism, which has a historical meaning. Mm-hmm. Um, they've co-opted it for themselves and then have sort of hoisted upon the what are now the partial preterists this prefix partial, which sort of communicates inconsistency or lacking some sort of development that the more full and consistent preterist view um Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't. Um, I don't know if I if I buy that particular point. I I, be, I don't think the phrase "partial preterist" is in the least bit offensive or uh, somehow subtly communicates an inadequacy. But um, but that's okay. I, I just see it descriptive as saying that some of the events have happened in the past, which seemed to me would be the phrase partial preterist would be uh, a, a, an accurate way of characterizing it. But, but I'm, I'm sympathetic to your broader concern that if there is this view that is a legitimate view, which we've been calling partial preterism, and then there's this other view that's way out, which might be called full preterism or hyper preterism, it looks like is the phrase that you describe. You want to make sure that there, that these are not they don't look like they're overlapping at all. You want to keep them way far apart. And uh, right. the, the present dialogue seems to have moved them closer together, illicitly, it seems. Yeah, and, and you know, you're right. that There may be, uh, it may or may not be that it casts a negative light on the on the orthodox view. But what I do think that it definitely does is it gives an air of legitimacy to what is not a legitimate view. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, by, by taking a term preterism, which historically meant... Um, the partial view mm-hmm. um, by by co-opting that uh, what is a orthodox term and um, applying it in in a consistent to use their word or, or full way as they do it gives them an air of legitimacy and, and oftentimes what will happen is these two views will be associated with one another and um, I found for example that uh, some people won't even address uh, the debate in a meaningful fashion or address the text and scripture in a meaningful way because they they have come to associate the views with one another. Mm-hmm. So for somebody like R.C. Sproul, for example, who is a preterist, uh, as, as you've historically called a partial preterist, mm-hmm. um, if, if I were to discuss what he had to say about the prophecies in the Olivet Discourse or in Revelation with, um, say, John MacArthur, um, they might not even get a, 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 an audience. Now, it might not have come across very well, but the point that I was getting at here. R.C. Sproul is a preterist, um, and John MacArthur is not. Uh, and John MacArthur, I've seen, dismiss preterism um, out of hand, I think largely because he expects that people will eventually make their way to hyper-preterism. But the point that I was making was that um, if I were to talk to somebody like John MacArthur, one well-respected theologian and teacher, about a view held by R.C. Sproul another very well-respected theologian and teacher, I wouldn't even get an audience in a lot of cases. So that was the point that I was trying to make here, was just that a, a view shared by many well-respected theologians will be dismissed by other well-respected theologians for no other reason, I think, than that it's associated with hyper-preterism. You know, because they're associated with one another. And so that's, mm-hmm. that's the negative impact that I see that it has on the orthodox view and the positive, unfortunately positive effect it has on the... Um, oh, you're running Hold out of time? just a minute. No, I'm sorry. We just had some... Music fire. Go ahead. Sorry about that. Okay. Well, so, well, anyway, so uh, the one other thing that I wanted to say, besides what the term has historically meant... Let, just to get, so I get clear, hold on just a minute, Chris. So you're making a request here that maybe I use stronger language to get these two views further apart than they appear by using the language of partial and full. 
with regard to preterism, because there is an historical preterism that has just always been called preterism that has now been characterized as partial preterist, and then you have what you you suggest are um, you know very very fringe group theologically that are co-opting. I'm sorry, why I don't know why this keeps happening here, but we got some equipment mess ups. Um, we'll just keep just background music. We'll keep talking through it. I won't hold it against you. Yeah, good. Um, the uh, and and uh, I lost my train of thought now, but. Um, um, and your concern is that uh, now this language has been co-opted by a group that makes themselves sound more orthodox because now they're the full preterists. They're like the real preterists when really they're right. imposters. So your first concern right. is that I work harder at keeping those distinct. Yeah, is and it, you know the, the real important thing to keep in mind here is that when we have views that are distinguished from one another within the church using labels, mm-hmm. like Calvinism versus Arminianism or whatever, the views are, or the, the terms are used to distinguish between the non-essentials. Just to clarify really quick, what I meant was that these kinds of labels are given to views that differ on the non-essentials, not on the essentials themselves. Um, you know, hyperpreterists for some time now have been calling partial preterists uh, just another brand of futurist. Mm-hmm. But that's really kind of absurd, because historicists, futurists, preterists, and idealists all sort of agree when it comes to the essentials of the mm-hmm. resurrection, of the future return of Christ, and so forth. Um, that term preterism is used to distinguish between the uh, views concerning the non-essentials, mm-hmm. not the essentials. And so I think that we should continue to use it in that vein. Well, let me ask you yes. a question. Let me ask you a question about this, uh, Chris, and, I, and I'm not trying to be contentious at all, but I, oh, okay. like I said, I haven't pursued this very much. Um, and I, what would you, what is precisely the the thing that violates orthodoxy in the preterist view? And I, my suspicion is that you're going to say, well, they don't believe in the second coming of Christ, but they, if, as I understand it, they do, and I'm not agreeing with them, but I'm just asking this question. They do believe in the second coming of Christ. They just believe it already came. And well, I'm uh, not saying they. I'd say they don't believe in. Yeah, that's correct. They don't believe in a future return of Christ. Uh, but it's not just that. It's also the, the resurrection of the dead. Um, not speaking of Jesus' resurrection, obviously, but all the dead spoken of in... So they deny the resurre- a physical resurrection of all people? They, de- they deny a physical resurrection of all people. They deny a future consummation of everything. In other words, they believe in that the Scripture has nothing to say about the future whatsoever, hmm. including the white throne judgment in Revelation 21 or 22, including the um, the, the, the uh, absolution, absolution of the current heavens and earth and replacing or, or restoration into the new heavens and new earth. All of this language they deny uh, has any future application whatsoever. Well, well, what do they think it means, then? The, the resurrection of the dead, for them, is uh, a spiritual one. It, it's, the, it's the rebirth that we all experience um, as Christians, that, that of course we all affirm, you know, um, being born again. Right, right. Um, you know, having gone back and listened to this, I'm not so sure that that's true. Uh, Hyperpeterists do believe that we are reborn while alive, but they also believe that after death we come to life and live in heaven for eternity um, in a, du- a disembodied existence, um, similar to the intermediate state that Christians have taught, but uh, never-ending. So they don't believe in a bodily resurrection in the future. The, the point that I'm getting at is just that I'm not sure that they would say that the resurrection is, in fact, pointing to the rebirth that we experience while alive. They might actually point to a resurrection of sorts, a spiritual one, after we die. Either way, the point is it's not bodily, so it's, it, it's, it's, uh, it's heretical. 
So that's what mm. they believe that that refers to, mm. and they deny that there is any future or, or past. So in, in, in terms of their ultimate eschatology, are they... Well, they wouldn't even be post-millennialists, would they? No, they wouldn't at all. Because there, there, there is no post-millennial return of Christ. Christ has already come. Now, I, made, I might have made a slight error here, because I'm not sure if hyperpreterists would call themselves post-millennialists or amillennialists, but they could be, because what they believe is that the period of time spoken of as a thousand years um, was a <clears throat> was a period of time, um, but wasn't you know wasn't a thousand years or longer. It was a very small period of time after which Christ returned. So it is possible that they could be considered amillennialists or post-millennialists. I just don't know that they would uh, accept that characterization because of the implications that would have amongst most Christians. It isn't. So th- this is what, when I've heard aspects of this explained, I, I, it struck me as completely unbelievable, Chris, because my response was, so what you're telling me, you uh, will use your term hyperpreterist, is that this is it. <laughs> the Christian hope exactly. has been fulfilled. This is as good as it's ever going to get. This is it? Yeah. And, uh, I mean, it seems so ludicrous. I don't know how anyone could even hold that view. And uh, I think their their chief um, scriptural defense is that they point to something like in the book of Revelations. For all of you listening, it's the book of Revelation. <laughs> not revelations uh these things that will shortly come to pass and also where jesus says that this will happen in your generation in the book of uh of matthew 24 there you know so those two things they're clinging to in a in a very literalistic sense maybe uh with no variation but then they have to do all of this uh fancy footwork around all these other passages am i getting this right it is true that hyperpederists do all sorts of gymnastics to avoid the implications of passages which speak of a bodily resurrection of the dead. Um, that having been said, <laughs> I, I would think that Greg and other futurists are doing gymnastics to avoid the implications of the time texts, which they say things like, this generation shall not pass away before these things take place, and many other things. Yeah, but, uh, but to be clear, there are those of us who are preterists in the orthodox sense of the uh, word, who would who would affirm the same things about those phrases, like the things that must soon take place, or this generation uh, will mm-hmm. not pass. Uh, you, some of you will not taste death before mm-hmm. uh, you see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. This kind of language is things that the orthodox uh, preterists would also challenge uh, dispensationalists or mm-hmm. premillennialists on as well. How about but, if we call you classical preterists? Would that would well? That actually, you? that's pretty close. Historic preterist or orthodox preterist is 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 the terminology that I think we would prefer if we were to be given a prefix at all. Mm-hmm. But, but, but I just want to reiterate that it didn't used to require a prefix. No, and, it's and called, right. It's kind of like the, 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 the phrase truth. Now Francis Schaeffer says true truth, and that sounds like a redundancy, but it's required now in the context of the culture because of the distortion of the word. Yeah, absolutely. Like and, you know, I can understand historic or orthodox being prefixed to preterist if necessary, mm-hmm. but, but I would point out I don't think anyone would let hyper-Calvinists get away with being called consistent or full Calvinists. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we, we, wouldn't, we wouldn't relegate partial or, or um, you know, something like that. To, so, so I guess the point that I'm getting at is I, I think that those of us in, in the Preterist community are comfortable with prefixes if required, but we would prefer ones that communicate the truth between All the right. distinction between these views. Chris, very well put. Thank you very much. Greg. And I, yes, I appreciate the clarification and the encouragement, and I'll keep that in mind in the future. It's been a good conversation. Got to run to break. Back 
after this. Greg Kokel on Stand to Reason. No, I was very encouraged by Greg's response to my call. I think that he considered carefully what I had to say. I gave him something to think about. Um, <clears throat> now, unfortunately, there haven't been phone calls after that using the language of partial and full preterism. So he hasn't yet been uh, put in the position to have to um, decide whether or not to take my advice. Either way, though, uh, like I said, I, I, was, I really appreciated the level of consideration he showed what I was saying. I do want to say, though, that I don't think that we have lost the battle yet. I don't think that we are forced to use the language of full and partial preterism, um, even with as, as far as it's been adopted. I think that we can reverse the trend, and I think that it's important that we try to. Um, now, maybe I'm being naive or wrong about that, but I'm going to keep fighting the good fight. Now, I'm going to play a call. <clears throat> Several months went by after the call that I just played. And then uh, a week and a half ago or so, this call was made into the show. All right, let's go to our first caller in Allen, Texas. David, welcome to the show. Hi, Greg. Hi. Hey, I uh, lead a an apologetics group at my church. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm fairly amateur at it, but anyway, huh. a question that's come up that I can't find any good um, good material on uh-huh. is if the if the disciples. You know, it seems pretty clear that the disciples felt like Jesus's return was coming in their lifetime. Mm-hmm. And if they were wrong on that, then why should we listen to the rest of the things mm-hmm. that they taught us? Mm-hmm. Now, it just so happens <clears throat> that the night before I listened to this call, I had finished interviewing Dee Dee Warren on a very similar question. The question being, are skeptics of Christianity justified in being skeptical of Christ because they think he's a false prophet who predicted his second coming in the lifetime of his contemporaries. So this was fresh in my mind. In fact, I had just finished publishing episodes 17 and 18 um, the, uh, the very day that I then listened to this call. So as you might imagine, I was very interested to hear what Greg would say. Well, there's a distinction I have to make here, and let me say up front, before I make this distinction, I think this is a little bit of a harder issue to deal with, um, because I think the implication of their sentiments in some cases seems to be clear that these that the disciples expected Jesus to come sooner. And there are also at least one occasion in the Olivet Discourse where Jesus... Uh, said something that could be understood as meaning that, though there are some other things in the Gospels that clearly, even though on first reading seem to suggest that, are referring to something different. I'll agree, um, but as you'll soon find out, as you listen to Greg's extended response, the manner in which he thinks these passages are speaking of something other than his second coming is different from what I think the these passages are talking about, even though I also agree they're not speaking of his second coming. Um, so keep that in mind. We'll, we'll hear about this in a few minutes. Even so, I think this is a, a little bit more of a difficult issue to deal with. Um, and to some degree, you know, if people are not fully satisfied with my answer... Uh, represents a little bit of an a kind of an outlier, you know. It's an it's a uh, it's an oddity or a strange thing that we can't explain in our system. But I want to offer a uh, before I give you my answers, I want to offer you a just a, a principle about how to assess these kinds of things. Okay. Um, 
you know from your exposure to apologetics that there are lots of reasons that are compelling uh, to to think that the, that the Bible is an authoritative document given in some sense supernaturally by God to man, and I have a tape on that, a talk on that, and there's, there's a number of reasons for that. Um, what would be a mistake to do, I think, and this really applies to a broader area of things, is when you have a lot of evidence in favor of one thing that seems to be compelling, and then you have some evidence against it, um, I think it's intellectually more honest to try to stick with the argument or the, the, the bulk of the evidence in favor of a view and then either try to either figure out why you have this outlier, this, this contrary piece of information, and if you can't figure that out, then allow it to remain an unanswered question for the moment, particularly because you have other good reasons to go in a different direction. All right? So I, so I'm, what I don't want people to do is to find something they don't understand or they can't explain and then have their inability to explain that undermine a whole bunch of other really powerful evidence in favor of something. And this applies here. It also applies to theological views, where you have all kinds of verses that might clearly support one view, and then you have these outliers, these odd verses that seem to go in the other direction. Well, you try to you make your decisions based on the bulk of the evidence, not on the outliers. And then you look at the outliers, and you try to figure out, is there a way we can, we can understand these in a way that's compliant or consistent with the bulk of the evidence? Does that procedural point make sense to you? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, good. I figured it would, but I wanted to make it for the sake of the, the, the all the other listeners as well. So I'm going to acknowledge that I think this one's a little bit tricky. Now, on this point, I wholeheartedly agree with Greg. Even if we thought that um, there was a small amount of uh, evidence that goes contrary to our system, you know, although I think that there is much more evidence that uh, than, than Greg's willing to admit that, that a futurist or dispensationalist system... Um, is wrong. You know, there are many time passages beyond the ones that he's even going to look at in this in this call. Uh, but but still, the, the overall um, approach of willing of being willing to uh, continue to struggle with a small amount of evidence, so long as there's a large volume of evidence in support of a system, I think is absolutely the right approach to take. So I, I concur with Greg on this point. S- some of the references to Jesus returning again are not hard like when jesus says some of you will not taste death until you see the son of man coming in his glory now this is one of those cases and i think there's a couple of the gospel accounts have a parallel account of this uh it's one of the cases where the chapter break is at an inconvenient uh spot because there's a chapter break right after he says this and that looks like the end of the account and then where's Jesus? He hasn't come back again, so he, he must have been mistaken. The disciples have all died. But in, in those cases, we read in the next verse, if you take the chapter break out, it says, uh, it says, some of you will not taste death until you see the Son of Man coming in his glory. Then three days later, Jesus took Peter, James, and John up to the mountain was transfigured before them. And so it becomes very clear that that was the fulfillment of what he had just said. Are you with me? Yeah. Okay, good. So that take, that's take, takes care of some of the passages. Now, this is what I meant when I said you would hear him refer to 
passages which speak of something other than the second coming. I agree <laughs> that this passage he's talking about isn't agree isn't talking about the second coming. But I think it strains credulity to believe that Jesus is talking about the Mount of Transfiguration. Um, <laughs> Greg is right that there is no original chapter break here. It flows right in from his statement that some will not taste death. Um, it, it transitions immediately from that into the Mount of Transfiguration. But think about this very carefully. Some three days passed. Would anyone <laughs> that he was talking to taste death before that happened? It, it, it's possible, but it's very unlikely. You know, the implications of Jesus' statement is that there are some who would have tasted death before they saw him coming in whatever sense he's talking about. Um, so, so the idea that only three days would have passed before that was fulfilled seems to be really foolish. Um, but when you add to that, Jesus doesn't just say, you will see the Son of Man in his glory. He says in Matthew sixteen twenty eight, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And the verse before that speaks of judgment. It says the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. Now, some might point that uh, point to that as being a reference to the resurrection, but I don't think that's necessary. The point is that he's going to come in judgment and in glory. And the idea that this happened at the Transfiguration um, just seems pretty nonsensical. So I think that uh, while while I would agree with Greg that this is very clearly not speaking of something that happens at the Second Coming, two thousand years removed, I don't think anyone could. I don't think there can even be a case made that this is a reference to the Transfiguration. Some of the other passages, and 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 part of the way to deal with this is to say, okay, what are the passages that seem to indicate this, and then cite them. Maybe put make a list. And then we we deal with them on an individual basis, and those ones in the Gospels that that seem to be fulfilled by the Transfiguration, those are struck from the list as as no longer outliers. We have good explanations for that. Uh, some of the passages too seem to be indications of the apostles' expectation, but they aren't, in a sense, declarations of the apostles themselves. So it's one thing when when the uh, the disciples declare something to be the case, and another time when the narrative reflects their own expectations, because not everything that the disciples said is under underwritten by the Spirit of God. Not everything they believed, only the things that they wrote in canon scripture and declared to be so are the things that are that that are are in uh we have to take as inspiration. The other words are inspired, but they are inspired records of what they thought, and it might be that they thought mistakenly, you know, about, I mean, the, the fact that some people uh, were, were doubting about Jesus, you know, that's a part of the record uh, about the resurrection. Um, and and uh, at one point when, when Peter was released from jail by the angels, he's knocking at the door, the girls who look through the window, they say, oh, it's Peter, and they say, no, you've seen a ghost. Well, the text is simply recording their mistaken notion, what they thought. And in, in, in a number of cases, and I'd have to see the, these things all stacked together here so I'd know which one I was speaking of, if there's an expectation being expressed, uh, that's different from a declaration that can be taken as doctrinal doctrinally true. And uh, some of those 
verses can be explained in that way. You know, in principle, I don't terribly disagree with this sentiment. The problem is I think you'd be hard-pressed to find examples of this being the case, where the disciples expected his second coming in their lifetime, and that it could be written away as just being a record of their expectation. That this was their expectation. I think clearly uh, there was the expectation of the apostles that Jesus uh, was going to pe- come in his lifetime, and then later on in the the New Testament era, it became clear that 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 he wasn't, and it seems like adjustments were made in light of that. Um, but uh, I mean, the, those same apostles didn't think Jesus was going to die either, you know, and right. and that's clear in the record as well. I think the most problematic passage is the one from Jesus himself in Matthew twenty-four, and in this one he says, "And um, this generation shall not pass away." until all these things take place. And uh, the word a generation there in Greek is the word ethne, and so some people have interpreted that to mean this, this ethnic group will not pass away, that is, the Jews will survive until the second coming. I don't, I don't think that that's the majority take on that passage, but it certainly is a possibility. As a matter of fact, the Greek word isn't ethne, it's genea, and while in isolation the word can be argued to mean race or people group, um, it's never used that way in the New Testament. So I don't think that this is a, a legitimate argument, and, for, and, and you'll hear more about this if you listen to the interview with Dee Dee Warren in episodes 17 and 18, so I'm not going to go over all that detail again, but um, the phrase this generation is used throughout Matthew leading up to this passage, and it's always speaking of the contemporary generation that Jesus is speaking to, um, in particular the apostate Jews that had rejected the Messiah. So, no, I don't agree with Greg here. I don't think it's possible to view this as a reference to race. Um, the, the, the way that I've taken it is that Jesus is describing a generation in which certain things will happen in a short period of time, and the generation he has just described in the Olivet Discourse, the generation that sees all of these things and, and, the, and, and the abomination, desolation, uh, that happens in the holy place, etc., will not pass away. This happens inside of the the span of a generation. Uh, that's one way to take it, too, but that has its own problems. You're darn tootin' it's got its problems. <laughs> Again, listen to episodes 17 and 18, in which I interviewed Dee Dee Warren, um, to learn about what some of those problems are. You know, I, I want to just reiterate this area of eschatology is not Greg's strong point. And I do find his um, admission that this is not an easy answer, at least from his perspective, um, refreshing, refreshingly humble. But uh, no, I don't think that um, this is a legitimate under way to understand this passage either. Um, so I, I take that Matthew 24 to be one of those passages that I have a big question mark over, and I'm not quite sure how to take that. Okay. Did you have any more uh no, I really didn't. I was grasping at straws here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because, I, frankly, I had come to the same conclusion that you mentioned at the beginning, where, you know, okay, this is one of those things that maybe there's not a really satisfactory answer to uh-huh. it, but that doesn't throw out everything else that we know. Yes, um, and, and I think that that's a very fair way of approaching it, and this is why I brought it up first. It's a procedural point. Again, I want to say I agree with this procedural point. I don't think that a small amount of evidence that goes contrary to what the bulk of the evidence suggests is a reason to um, doubt 
what it is that the bulk of the evidence suggests. However, I just, I don't think that, well, first of all, I don't think that this is a small amount of evidence against his understanding of these passages. Um, but second of all, I, I think that understanding them in their proper way, um, as I will I, uh, go on to explain in response to this call in a, in a moment, um, it resolves the problem entirely. And what you end up having is actually a very powerful answer to the question of our, a very powerful apologetic um, to skeptics of Christ. Now, look at if you had a whole bunch of outliers like that, you've got all kinds of problems with the paradigm that we have regarding the authority of Scripture and our our support in favor of the authority, the divine authority of Scripture is weak. Then pretty soon we're looking at a paradigm change. You know, something's right. got to give here to be intellectually honest. And uh, any 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 system of thinking, though, is going to have its oddities. Any any as I've said in the past, theology is not tidy uh, because life is not tidy. And I wish uh, we had all the loose ends tied up here. Um, but there are going to be loose ends, and I think there's a sense in which we we want to become comfortable with them, but at the same time do our best to tie them up if we're able. Yeah. Make sense? Perfect sense. All right. Good thanks question, David. Pardon me? I uh, just said thanks a lot. Uh, you're welcome. Say hi to your group for me. All right. All right. Bye-bye. Um, yeah, there's, there's always going to be difficulties, always going to be hard issues to deal with, and uh, there's not always going to be quick answers. Some things have remarkably simple solutions, like those passages that I mentioned and where Jesus said, some will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his glory. You just remove the chapter reference, and there's the answer. It's all part of the same account. Other things are not so simple. But as I think that we're about to see as we listen to my call-in um the week following the call we just listened to, there is a remarkably simple answer to Matthew 24. So let's go ahead and start listening to the call that I made in response to this. And let me just say, I really hope that David, the the, the person who was who called in here, um, is listening because I think that this is a powerful tool that he can take to his apologetics group. So uh, here here's the call that I made in response to that. Let's go to Bonnie Lake, Washington, and Chris as our first caller. Hi, Chris. Hi, Greg. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Glad to. Yeah, um, the reason I'm calling uh, is that last week a caller named David from Texas called in asking why we should believe what the disciples taught, even though they seemed to be wrong about when Christ would return. Uh-huh. And um, that, that was the way the question was worded, right? It needed some. Ver- I needed to uh, kind of clarify some things about that, but yes, that's it. Yeah. Um, well, well, first let me say I agree wholeheartedly with the first thing that you said in response to that, which is that a small amount of recalcitrant evidence or anomalies shouldn't um, dissuade us from believing in what the, the bulk of the evidence says. Yeah, so that's totally very nicely that. put. The outliers, every system is going to have some things you're not going to be able to explain in light of the system, and we, we should have a certain amount of um, of tolerance for those unanswerable, uh, unanswered issues if the rest of the system seems well justified. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, right. I agree. But 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 I do disagree with with the interpretation of the challenging passage that you gave him. And, and what I'd like to do, if it's okay with you, is just offer up an alternative answer. Sure. One what, which which one. passage was that? The one about the um, about the transfiguration or the well, Matthew twenty four? I, I strongly disagree with that one, but uh, with the way that you interpreted that, and that's okay. But the one I really want to focus on because I think it's the most um, challenging is the Matthew twenty four. Yeah, passage. the Olivet Discourse. Fair enough. Okay. Yeah, I'll, I'll so, go there and, now. Okay, and, and while you're going there, um, I'll just make one quick correction. You said that the word for generation in that passage was ethne. It's actually the, the word genea. Oh, okay. Um, 
And, uh, and throughout the New Testament, um, the word Ghanaia always means um, a generation of people, huh. not a race. Okay. Um, and, and then the one other thing I'll point out before I give my answer is that uh, the phrase this generation, everywhere else in the New Testament, is always a reference to, the, to that contemporary generation of yeah. people. Yeah, okay. I'm not saying... Go ahead. I, I interrupted you. Go ahead. You, you're oh. not saying what? Well, I was going to say, I'm not saying that that, therefore precludes us from understanding the phrase this generation from meaning that generation. Yes, okay, I'm glad you said that, because I was going to offer uh, that response. It's a matter of methodology here, because just because everyone speaks that way isn't a defeater for understanding this passage in a unique way. It could be that this is the unique use of that, and uh, because there are examples where there is unique uses of it, but I do think that the point that you're making plays in favor of a different understanding of that. So I would say it was not a defeater of the view, but certainly an undercutter. And this is where, you know, some the this generation, meaning that group of people, uh, that, uh, that, that Jesus had, I mean, that's what you've just offered shows that that may be the favored, uh, but not the necessary way of understanding it. Okay, so let's go to Matthew 24. Now, I just want to interject here for a moment and say that I wish I'd had more time, and I wish that I had made a point here, which is that it's not only that the phrase this generation in the New Testament always refers to Jesus' contemporaries that makes the view I'm about to offer favored over the one that Greg offered. It's also that the phrase this generation is used several times by Jesus leading up to this very passage. And in every single one of those circumstances, Jesus is pronouncing judgment on that generation, the, the the contemporary generation of Christ that had rejected the Messiah, he was pronouncing judgment on them leading up to this passage, and that is an additional bit of evidence that I think means that the view I'm about to offer is favored. But, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. This is the uh, the Olivet Discourse, Jesus' uh, last public discourse, and he is talking about the signs of his coming. It's the parallel passage of Mark 11 and Luke 21. And yes. so you, you have a lot going on there, and people have dealt with different passages in different ways. Maybe some are historical, some are futurist, uh, some are immediate futurist, some are long-term futurist. But I am curious to see uh, what you have to say about that passage. Well, let, let me just, just give you the summary answer to David's question. And then you can probe me with any questions that you might have, okay? Sure. Uh -huh. um, and, 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 you know, I'll, I'll go ahead and I'll give the disclaimer that, that what I'm going to be explaining is the first understanding of this passage. But as you might recall, I called in a few months ago explaining that there's a difference between the preterist understanding of any passage and the hyper-preterist one. And I'm not proposing, I'm not proposing a hyper-preterist right. view that, that the second coming happened in their lifetime. That's not what I'm saying. Unfortunately, I don't know if it was uh, the my cell phone or if it was his recording, but um, what I said there was that uh, twice I used the, the word preterist, <laughs> and for some reason it didn't come through. So um, just in case that's not clear. Right, right. My, okay, right. And my, then you were the one who said you don't even like to use the word preterist to describe the hyper-preterist view because it it's really such a de deviation from cl historical preterism that it should be named something different. And, right? and a deviation from Christian orthodoxy. Okay. So so I just want to make that clear. Listeners, don't be scared. I'm not talking about the hyper-preterist <laughs> uh, point of view. And, and, and the, summary, the summary answer to David's question is, is this. The, the, neither Jesus nor the disciples expected the second coming in their lifetime, but hmm. they did expect something big in their lifetime. And what I think that this, uh, what this discourse is about is not his second coming, which might sound like a surprise because he uses the word come and he refers to coming in the glory of his angels and stuff. Yeah. Um, and, and we'll get to that, you know, when you ask me questions. But, mm -hmm. but, the, but the summary is, 
the disciples, first of all, had no idea that he was going anywhere to begin with. And you actually, you actually pointed that out last week. Um, it, it, they didn't know he was going to die. So mm-hmm. when they ask him at the beginning of Matthew 24, what will be the sign of your coming, they're asking, they had, they had just been told by Jesus that the, that the temple would be destroyed and that not one stone would be left upon another. And so what they're asking about, in my opinion, is when is, when is God going to come, when is Christ going to come to judge uh, apostate Jerusalem by the destru- destruction of the temple that he just said that he w- that would happen in their lifetime. Mm-hmm. And sure enough, that did happen. Hmm. I mean, you know, it, w- it was destroyed in 70 AD. So that's the short answer. Uh, Jesus was not a false prophet. He was a true prophet, and we can trust the disciples' expectation because they didn't expect the second coming or the resurrection of the dead or the final judgment or any of that kind of stuff in their lifetime. What they expected was a, um, a judgment upon Jerusalem, a, a judgment upon apostate Israel in their lifetime. Okay, uh, let, me, let me just offer a question. I'm not going to try to rebut the view. I'm interested sure. in what you have to say, and, and largely I'm going to ask a couple of questions for clarification. But, Absolutely. Uh, because I, you know, I have some opinions about this passage, but I think it's a hard passage. I think there are a number of things that could be going on here. Now, my first response when you say they're not expecting his coming, but they're asking about his judgment. Now, if it turns out that Jesus knows, that his judgment upon Israel is is going to be a result of his parousia, his second coming, you know, what we classically think of it, even though they didn't have this in mind, Jesus could still be answering in light of that, and it, it, it and I think that might explain some of the um, some of the some of the language of this passage, but um, does that make any sense to you? It does, although I will say that it would strike me as odd that he, they would be asking a question that he largely doesn't answer well he d- he does answer if their question is when is your coming going to be and he also a- the, actually the question is what will be tell us when will these things be destruction of the temple i think there what will be the sign of your coming and right. of the end of the age so there are a couple of things in view there in verse three of matthew 24 and um and you are you're presuming there that their understanding of coming means that he is going to be coming in judgment upon those who tore the temple down? Exactly. No, not exactly. I, I wish that I had been listening more carefully because, and I think I think he might have just misspoken, but th- what, what he just said gives the impression that, and my agreeing to it, gives the impression that I'm saying he was pronouncing judgment upon those who tore the temple down. But that uh, would have been judgment upon Rome, which is not what he's pronouncing judgment. He, he's pronouncing judgment on Jerusalem, which was in their lifetime manifested by the destruction of the temple. And, 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 and let, me, let me elaborate just briefly on that, because, again, what I want to point out is that they didn't know that Jesus was going anywhere. So, so the idea that they were asking a question about what we think of as the second coming, which, which I agree is in our future, seems to me to be really, really weird. Yeah, like, that's a good point, I think. Uh, they, they weren't completely... I mean, Jesus had talked about dying and, and the like, but the detail about, you know, I will go and then come back and take you where I am and I, you know, many mansions, all that comes later on uh, in the week here in Passion Week and the Upper Room Discourse. So I think this is a good point. Yeah, so, so now, and, and so when he answers the question about their coming, I would agree with you, it's possible that he could be addressing their first question about the destruction of the temple, and then he could be asking, answering a question about coming, pointing to the second coming, although it would seem to be more likely that he would answer the question that they asked, which is, what is, which couldn't have been a question about the second coming, or at least wasn't hmm. likely a question about the second coming. So, hmm. as far as what coming is, um, 
this is all over the Old Testament, and, and unfortunately I don't have the, the references in front of me, so I can't give them to you, but I'd be happy to um, email you or whatever you might want to do. But throughout the Old Testament, um, you find language of God coming in judgment on nations like Egypt, um, on Babylon, a, a, number of language, a number of nations, all things that happened in the past. Mm-hmm. And nobody thinks that, in fact, they use some of the same apocalyptic language here, coming on clouds, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a passage that says that God came on clouds to judge Egypt, and yet nobody thinks that God saddled up on a cloud and flew down in, <laughs> in the sky to judge them. No, right. Uh, I, I think there, there are some other things in this passage, though, that put that reference in a in a different category, but we'll wait in a we'll moment and get to that. that. Yeah. Absolutely. Now, some of the passages that he's, or some of the verses in this passage that he's probably think that he probably has in mind are things like the gospel being preached to all nations, um, lightning shining from east to the west, which we're about to get to. Um, <clears throat> there, there are several verses in here that people assume must refer to something that hasn't happened for a variety of reasons. We didn't get to talk about those in my interview with Didi, nor did I talk to Greg about it in this call. But but just know that if you're listening and you're skeptical and you're and you're thinking of verses like the gospel will be preached to all nations, trust me, I'll get to verses like that in future episodes. There are very very simple answers to those questions. And as far as the end of the age goes, um, I definitely think it was the end of an age. There was something dramatic that happened when the destruction of the temple happened, which is that the mosaic system of, of um, right service and worship ended. So and when they say the, uh, the end of the age, they are speaking of that particular dispensation. And they're not envisioning the church age, which is beyond their their comprehension at this point. Would, is that what you'd say? Well, they don't they don't they don't imply in their questioning that, that there isn't another age to follow. Right, right. That would be something we'd be presuming in the text. But 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 they do they ask what is the end of the current age? Yeah, that's what you're at. Yeah, correct. And so the what I was saying is. I was agreeing with you and saying they, it would be unlikely for them to have the church age in view because they have no reason to think there is there would be such a thing. Yeah, at this agree. point, okay. So, so then, so then I, I I take it and I want to move this a little more quickly. I think absolutely. it's a great observation, but it sounds to me then that you are suggesting that all that follows is something that it has, has a historical fulfillment uh, that brings that in the very near future that brings to a close the age that they are familiar with and that would be probably broadly the messian the, the mosaic age of the law etc and then the destruction of the temple in 70 AD would be kind of an exclamation point uh that is uh the, the historical exclamation point to the to the scriptural ex- exclamation point at the end of the age that we get say in the book of Hebrews or something like yes. that would that be fair that's very fair okay so how are you to understand then this uh language of uh so, so in other words, it does happen in their generation. There is no difficulty here in that sense. And uh, my question then would be, and by the way, that it makes a lot of sense with your saying, uh, but it does raise the question of uh, when he says, behold, uh, if they say I am in the room or in the field or this and that, don't believe anybody because everyone will see me coming in the clouds with power and great glory. So this sounds like a visible, powerful, and conclusive return of Christ or an advent of Christ in some sense. But that, you that wouldn't would, see it that way. No, I, I wouldn't. Um, I, I, that is interesting. I'd never given thought to the fact that he did say, if people say, here I am, um, you know, he says in verse 23, uh, behold, here's the Christ, or there he is, do not believe him. Um, so at, at least they would, They would. Uh, it seems that they expected a, a visible um, judgment, uh, a visible presence of Christ in judgment. Something um, like that. That would actually be a sign to show them that you know these others are false messiahs. Yes, but... 
the thing is, is of course, they didn't know he was going to die and go anywhere. So, of course, they would expect that the judgment he was pronouncing would be one in which he's present visibly. So there's no surprise there. But his answer, as we'll see, and, and as I'm about to say, doesn't, doesn't require that we understand the coming he speaks of to be, in, to be one in which he's visibly present because the real Messiah returning would be, would have this kind of, kind of universal manifestation in the clouds. And, uh, well, but see, that's, but that's the question, is, is when he says, um, just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, will the coming of the Son of Man be? And he says, uh, he says um, where's the language? Um, verse 27. Says this, verse 27. Well, I know, I know, but I'm looking for, um, uh, then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. They will all see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky. Now, this is really important. Because, verse 30. Verse 30, that's right. He's quoting uh, Daniel, mm -hmm. okay? And, in, and I think it's Daniel 9. But it's interesting because what Daniel says is he talks about a vision that he had in the night where he saw the son of, uh, one like the Son of Man mm -hmm. coming, to the coming to the throne of the Ancient of Days. Mm -hmm. Where is the Ancient of Days' throne? It's, well, it, it's in heaven, I'd it's say. It's in heaven. Yeah, by so the way, it's Daniel, Daniel 7, for the record. Yeah, or, sorry, Daniel. Well, That's right. Yeah, so, so and actually, what it's, the actual text says, I saw the, one like the Son of Man coming up mm -hmm. to the throne of the Ancient of Days. Mm -hmm. So... I think that what he's. I think yes, it is possible that even though they didn't know that he was going to be going anywhere, what they did expect was a judgment on Jerusalem in which Christ would be visible, because hmm. um, they wouldn't have expected that he died yet. Mm -hmm. But I don't think that his answer um, requires that we understand him promising that they would see him visibly. I think that what they what he was saying they would see is uh, the evidence that he had come to take his throne with the Ancient of Days, you know, and we see that language throughout the New Testament, that Jesus, at his ascension, took, um, took his seat on the throne. Okay, then, let, one last thing, because we're up against a break here, and, and, and I, I just take this as very provocative uh, conversation. I appreciate your insights and your suggestions about this passage, and part of the reason is because, for some people, this, this passage has been read in only one way so many times that it's, in, yeah. it's very difficult for them to see out of the box, yeah. and, and I'm particularly taken with your observation about verse 3, uh, the sign of your coming presumes that they believe in a second coming, and of course this notion hadn't really occurred to them yet. So this is, a, and particularly that's coming from the mouth of the disciples, not the mouth of Jesus, who might be referring to something they don't really understand, but will later. And so yeah. that, I think, is a very significant observation. Uh, and then you would read verse 36, but at that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son of Man, but the Father alone, to be referring to the day and hour when this destruction will descend upon Jerusalem. Yeah, I mean, just because he promised that it would happen in their lifetime, uh, if in fact that's what he did, which of course yeah. I believe he did, uh, just because he does that doesn't mean that he knows or that he thinks anybody else can know the precise day and hour at which that would happen. I point this out just because that's one objection to the preterist view, is that um, he he couldn't have been speaking about something that would happen in their lifetime because he could he didn't know precisely when it was going to happen. But look, I could I could predict that you know something is going to happen in my lifetime and not know the exact day and hour that it's going to happen. So that's just a false objection. I don't think that's what Greg was getting at, but I th at the time I thought it might have been, and so I just wanted to preempt that. Yeah. Although it is it is interesting that in the parallel passage in Luke, um, the abomination of desolation language is actually rendered differently by Luke. And as you know, Luke was writing for a Gentile audience, and mm -hmm. what he said was, when you see the armies surrounding the temple, or mm -hmm. when you see the armies surrounding Jerusalem, 
um, then you need to flee because you know her desolation is near. Mm-hmm. And what history records is that, in fact, that when, the, when the Roman armies surrounded Jerusalem, um, there was a brief period of time where they had to withdraw. Yes, because uh, of the death of uh, Caesar, and there was yes. a change of the guard, so to speak. And, yes, and, and, and the Christians in Jerusalem, the Christian Jews in Jerusalem, did, in fact, flee. flee. That's what Eusebius records mm-hmm. uh, before the armies come back. And yeah. so, uh, anyway, so, uh, yeah. so there was one surrounding, uh, and that was, um, I'm trying to remember who it was, the, the Octavius? Octavius, maybe, and then then he goes back because now he's heir to the throne, and the, Caesar has died, so he then retreats, and so there's an opportunity now for them to flee, and then uh, then it's Titus that returns and finally does the destruction a year or two later. So uh, right, yeah. very interesting bit of information and discussion on this passage. I appreciate all your insight, Chris. So yeah, I think that Greg was very humble and considerate in listening to what I had to say, and I think that he acknowledged that I made some pretty strong points. I I think that I left him with a stone in his shoe, to use one of his favorite phrases, and I hope that that he'll consider the preterist viewpoint, and and just as importantly, I hope that his listeners, and in particular David, the man who called last week, will take this back to his apologetics group. So anyway, I hope that you've enjoyed it. I know that some of you may have already heard it, but I thought that it was something that some who don't listen to Greg's show would find valuable next in the next episode i intend to cover justification by faith alone and the relationship between faith and works and salvation so um i hope that you'll join me for the next episode of the the apologetics podcast until then (laughs) 